want to believe the best of the person, you know, we want to believe that they have good intent towards the world. This is my friend Angie speaking. That's not her real name. I'm talking to her in the kitchen of her midtown Manhattan apartment. Her baby is sitting on her lap. I'm talking to Angie because a few years ago, she was ensnared by one of the darkest, most manipulative and insidious of cons. It's a scheme that preys on intimate trust. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift. Stories about con artists and the lives they ruin. Now, if you've listened to the show thus far, you've heard stories about cult leaders, card sharks, imposters, art forgers, people who are masters at gaining our trust. What I want to talk about today is a con that's one step beyond all that. It's called a sweetheart scam. Dating is one of those areas where we normally have our guard up. The stakes are high. We look for every sign that a person is untrustworthy, off, or just wrong for us. We may have bad experiences, but normally we learn from them and move on. I want to understand what happened to Angie. From the outside, it seemed impossible that she, a smart, critical person, would fall victim to a love con. Angie was a successful artist in her late 20s when she met a guy on the dating site OkCupid. We'll call him Greg. Here's what she knew about Greg. He's handsome. He's in a prestigious MD-PhD program at a university in the city. And he actually, he knew a good deal about art and art history. So it was possible to just have an easy organic conversation. He was incredibly funny and incredibly charming and incredibly kind. Honestly, he was exactly my type. A little bit dorky and a little bit tall, dark and handsome. He made me laugh. So Angie actually did try to Google this guy to check his story. But his name was so incredibly generic that it was difficult to find anything on him and know for sure that it was him. Meanwhile, she introduced him to her friends, and everyone loved him. He was so charming and kind. Greg is also supportive of her career. He encourages her to start curating art shows, not just painting. But after about a year into their relationship, things start getting a little bit weird. Greg starts having really big overreactions to really small things. For instance, at Angie's 30th birthday party. All her close friends are there, her family is there. It's a really nice, intimate gathering. And Greg gets up to make a toast. And he tells a joke that's not particularly funny. It has something to do with Russian mail-order brides. And not only Angie, but her whole family doesn't really take it well. Nobody laughs. And instead of reacting to this in a normal way, Greg becomes incredibly defensive. And he turned very, very paranoid. So he, he doesn't fit in with my family. He feels like he's constantly being judged. He's constantly being kind of evaluated, which wasn't true. He'd always got along with my family. All of a sudden kind of turned into what felt like a different person, someone who had a temper and was deeply paranoid. But I felt like he was probably stressed out at school or at work. And from then on, he would have 
these kind of temper outbursts once every few months, the, which I felt like were disproportionate to the situation. But between those, everything was still really great. So at this point, I need some help understanding Angie's story. So I've brought in Emily Yaffe. She's a contributing editor at The Atlantic. But most importantly, for many years, she wrote Slate's advice column, Dear Prudence. During her time as Prudence, Emily counseled hundreds of women who were taken advantage of by their partners in countless ways. We're going to talk through what happened next to Angie. So for you, are reactions like that a red flag? Or could it be exactly what Angie is saying, that he's just stressed and these are just bad moments? Well, we're talking about him because we know he ends up somehow being a really bad guy. But every few months, yeah, that's something to keep your eye on. But I I haven't heard anything that makes me say immediately, Angie get out. Yep. Yep. And and neither had I, but he moves into her apartment mm-hmm. and she is covering the rent. And so she continues to pay for all of the expenses because he's in school. Is he just mooching off off her? He is completely mooching off of her. She's paying for everything. Um, there you go. Yeah. So he tells her that he's in this very prestigious MD-PhD program in New York, that he is studying to be a doctor and a scientist, that he works in this very kind of hoity-toity lab and studying all of these, you know, highfalutin concepts. Um, And basically that he's this really brilliant guy who's going to be a doctor one day and really make something of his life. But right now he's a struggling PhD student with school loans, so he can't really afford a lot of things. So that's his backstory. All right. Uh, I mean, if you are in that kind of program, it's perfectly reasonable that you're broke um, Mm -hmm. and you have nothing but loans. Had she ever gone by the lab? So that is what we're going to hear now. (laughs) Um, So you're you're on the exact same page because he moves in and she actually, it's not like this is something that she's been thinking about, but she realizes that actually she's never seen his lab. Um, Mm. She's never met any of his classmates or anyone he's worked with. So let's, uh, we'll hear Angie telling you about this. Usually when you start living with someone, you find out more about them just by things that they have strewn around. And it seemed like the level of information I had remained the same. There was never any school IDs. There was never anything directly linking him to the institution that he was in theory spending all of his time in. And then I realized that I had never met anyone he went to school with or anyone he worked with. Did you ask him about it? Did it... I did, I did. And that actually caused one of those uh, very strong emotional reactions of, you know, he felt like I was accusing him of, of somehow lying or, or, you know, of not being who he said he was. And uh, uh, he thought that that was just a ridiculous thing to accuse him of. I would just kind of step away from that subject and not really bring it up again. So what are you thinking now, Emily? Bingo. Um, Okay. So now they've been together for a year. He's moved in. And she's saying, I realized that all the normal things that should have happened have not happened. Over the course of a year, I mean, there's going to be some 
work, but people from work are having a party. There's an office Christmas party. There's a, you know, hey, I'm working late at the lab. Why don't we meet and, you know, come up and see my friends? Now I'm getting a really bad feeling. And then when she says, hey, you know, how come I've never been to your lab or met your coworkers? Then you get the accusation, uh, you're, you're saying I'm a liar, you don't trust me. Yep. I mean, he's essentially, there's a weird confession in his response. Yeah, there is, isn't there? Because his initial reaction isn't, you know, oh, like sure, but instead it's you think I'm lying. It's very defensive. I don't know if Greg is, do you think that's what was motivating Greg? The just seeing I'm making Angie dance? I don't, I don't know. I think that was part of it. I think definitely having that control over her was something that he had in mind, just because I see that motive over and over again. I mean, why bother with a young artist? I mean, she was gorgeous. That's that's definitely something. Okay. And so um, that's nice. But it's not like he can get that much out of her. But I imagine kind of the satisfaction of just controlling someone's life completely. I mean, he got her to do things all the time. Like she didn't take a scholarship in Europe because he told her that she couldn't go. Or he would not only break up with her, but take some sort of job in Africa in kind of this war region um, for, it wasn't Doctors Without Borders, but something along those lines so that he would endanger his life because of her. And he would give her ultimatums like this all the time throughout their relationship so that she ended up turning down opportunities and just kind of being completely under his control. Okay, well, really bad. You know what? She got sucked in, and then she's in, and, you know, you say she's gorgeous. So they meet on OkCupid. Okay Here's the photo. Greg knows he's a big pile of nothing, so as himself, he could never get her. But as this MD-PhD student, as this figure he created, then he gets this gorgeous woman to fall in love with him and do whatever he says. But what mm. what he uh, what he's doing right now, it also smells a little bit like gaslighting to me. So we're hearing the word gaslighting a lot these days in a lot of different contexts. And relationships is actually the original context. It comes from an old movie where a man would actually literally turn the gaslights down inside a house to make his wife think that she was slowly going insane. The concept behind it is, you're not going insane, but the other person makes you feel like you're the one with all of the problems. And so in relationships, this becomes a really difficult problem to deal with because you're already on emotional territory. And so how do you trust yourself? How do you trust that you are right? How do you stand your ground rather than think, maybe I am being the one who's weird and paranoid. Maybe he really is right. That's a classic abuser. It's you. You and your horrible, intrusive questions are making me act this way. So stop making me go nuts. The insidious part of this thing is that relationships like this do put this little worm of self-doubt in your brain 
you know, it's it's like a maggot eating. What maybe it is me? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so great. Everyone loves him. He's working so hard. Maybe I am asking rude and intrusive questions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the worst part of it. Well, it's inter- I would get letters very often. They would describe this terrible abusive relationship. Now, the key is it is not abusive 100% of the time because if it gets over a certain percentage, you know, uh, you, hey, honey, how was your day? Pow and the kisser. Basically, at some point, you're going to get out. So the abuser kind of probably keeps it around the 30% mark. So most of the time, it's good. And then it's really, really bad. And the letters would be about, so he's a good guy. How do we get rid of the bad part? And I would always say, there's no good guy inside the abuser. They're the same person. And I think a lot of people are convinced there's really this good person there because I see this good person. I interact with this good person. So this bad stuff, that's not real. Now, I do think, you know, if you have an addiction or you have an anger problem or you have a whatever, I do think people can change. And I also think some people can't change. Um, And if you're with someone who's an abuser 30% of the time and great 70% of the time, he's an abuser, period. That percentage, 30% abusive, 70% loving kindness, it's creepily close to how Angie described Greg's behavior at the time. But then things get even weirder. My conversation with Emily Yaffe continues right after a short break. We're back with Emily Yaffe and back with our story about Angie and her boyfriend Greg, who is not all that he seems. What happens a few weeks later after they have this confrontation and he accuses her of lying is that his student ID suddenly appears on the table and it's very obviously fake. (laughs) So he now procures this fake ID to say that he goes to the school and Angie actually confronts him and she says, you know, honey, I love you, but this looks like a fake ID. And he has an explanation. So there, he's all good. He said he had a real ID, but he lost it. And to replace it would cost $50. And so he decided to make a fake ID so that he didn't have to pay the $50 to replace it. I'm at the uh, let's change our locks time in this relationship. So so Angie does kind of accept this fake ID explanation, but there's something did make its way into her mind because she has a friend who's a private investigator or PI, and she decides to ask him to look into Greg. And so her PI friend says, sure, we're probably not going to find anything bad. You're probably being paranoid, but let me look into it. And he ends up finding nothing, as in actually nothing. He can't find this guy. Oops. <laughs> At that point, if a private investigator can find nothing on someone, look, once you have a name like Greg Smith, that is difficult. But with all this 
a Greg Smith, who is in an MD, PhD program at wherever, suddenly narrowed the universe to your Greg Smith and that he has left no trace is really scary. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I think Angie at this point is also a little bit freaked out. So she has a friend who is a prominent scientist in a related field and happens to know people in this MD-PhD program. And so she asks him to check in with the lab. And it ends up, surprise, surprise, that no one at the lab knows who Greg is either. And it just, it goes downhill from there because she confronts him. Um, And he has a story for her. He says that he had to drop out of the initial MD-PhD program and that he was too embarrassed to tell her. And so now he was working at a different lab and trying to get back in. And so he has this whole story about how, you know, he was really embarrassed and he just didn't want to disappoint her and didn't want her to know that he had failed at something. I mean, at this point, I wouldn't even confront him in the apartment. This is a confront in the restaurant in case he goes berserko. Uh, this, This is really scary. Yeah. At this point, they've been together for almost three years. So it's quite a while into the relationship. And she really still doesn't want to believe it. And she buys this second story, the sob story about how he failed and he didn't want to disappoint her. And so she makes him apologize to her whole family for lying and to all of her friends. And he does. And she thinks that he's very contrite. When this happens, though, and she was telling me this story, I couldn't believe that she was willing to forgive him and to accept that apology because it seemed like such a betrayal of trust. I mean, I don't know how you can continue living with someone like that. And so I actually asked her, I said, you know, how can you trust him when you know that for the past few years, every single word out of his mouth has been a lie? And she had an explanation for me. It sounded true enough. And he sounded like he meant it. And he sounded like, you know, he's... He messed up really badly. He's willing to fix it. He's willing to go through this considerable emotional stress of talking to a bunch of people he had lied to. And I understand how you can get stuck in a lie. And you still loved him. I did. So when you hear that, what's your reaction? I get it. Particularly for young women, if you would like to be married and have children, Unfortunately, biologically, you're on a different timeline than a guy. A guy can break up at 32 and is like, okay, I got to start over again, um, but I've got time. The pressure on a young woman, if first of all, you get kind of tired of dating, you think you found the person, everyone's flawed, and I understand the inertia of I can't end this. I can't get back out there. I can't go back on OkCupid. What if I go on OkCupid and I find another crazy nut? Uh, you know, I, I, I understand how you delude yourself into, well, there's good and bad. There's good and bad in everyone. And I just can't blow this thing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we do know that Angie did want to get married and didn't want okay. to have kids. Yeah. yeah. So so this was definitely a consideration for her. So surprise, surprise, you're going to be really shocked by this. <laughs> um, but the second sob story was also false. He was not working in any other lab. He was never in that lab to begin with. So 
his apology was another front for a whole lot of nothing. When he leaves for a week to visit his family, she suddenly realizes, oh my God, what what is going on? You know, I need to get out of this. And so that's when she says, basically, do not come back. And she never ends up learning who he really was, even at this stage. And she said that they didn't even really break up. It was more of a just, I need you to not come back here right now. We're just going to spend some time apart. And I asked her, you know, do you, I mean, do you believe any of it? Do you think that this was real? And it's very strange because my reaction to hearing this story is everything about it is fake. And her experience is very different. Do you think he actually loved you? Uh, yes. Uh, so yes, yes, I do. I you still think he did? Uh, yeah, I don't think that a pathological liar cannot fall in love with someone. But I also think that they can't stop lying. I mean, he was kind. He acted kind. Uh, like some of those things I don't think you can make up. But he wasn't actually kind to you if he lied to you for three years. It was an acting kind rather than being kind. Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's um, like, this, this would be a philosophical question, right? Um, in a way, lying to someone for three years is actually incredibly cruel. In another way, I mean, he took care of me when I was sick. He dealt with every kind of emotional problem that I could have had. He wrote all of, you know, the art writings that I needed written. He would, you know... Fix, fix my toilet when, when it needed fixing. I mean, how do you define kindness, I guess? Didn't he also create emotional problems for you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, towards the end, he was the one creating all of the emotional problems, and he could not actually help those. <laughs> for a while, I was sad, and then I was very, very angry. But I'm not necessarily sure I was that angry at him. I was angry at myself for having kind of put up with this for so long, or for not having been able to see clearer for kind of having been a sucker, I guess. I think it's really interesting that even now you blame yourself and not him. Why do you think that is? Um, I think he was, I mean, he was a sick person. And uh, I'm not. Um, I'm actually a pretty healthy person. <laughs> um, and like, I mean, I don't say whatever was happening to him, I think was completely, especially towards then, but probably through all of it, I think it was completely out of his control because that's how it works with pathologies. I think, bravo, Angie. I think she's got really good psychological insight into herself and him and what the relationship was and why she was in it and stayed in it and how she realized it had to end. I think it's right that she looked at herself and said, what was my part in this? Not that she's a pathological liar, but how did I convince myself to accept his lies, to put up with this? Because if you're not going to do that part, then I think you're very vulnerable to have it happening again. Um, and she sounds like she's been able to step away and look at both of them 
and come to an understanding. And, you know, your questions are really good. Did he really love you? And she's right. It's kind of an existential thing. Does your dog love you? There's a whole theory. Your dog doesn't actually love you. Your dog's just manipulating you. But at some level... You know, they did They did have actual, she described, intimacy. So you can see the power of that. Uh, but in the end, he's sick and she's not. I, I like the way she's come to that conclusion. It's interesting to me that she doesn't blame him basically at all. Um, so the interview you're hearing right now took place a few years after the breakup when she was married and had a child. Um, Yay! Yes. So happy ending for Angie. And it's interesting that now that, you know, that everything is okay, that she actually doesn't blame him. I blame him. I mean, I think that, you know, he was a con artist and that a lot of what he did was unforgivable. And in my mind, wouldn't it be a little bit psychologically healthy as well to give some of that blame to him and not to say it's all me? I didn't hear her putting it that way. I heard her saying, he's sick. He's got some kind of personality disorder, so he will always act in a pathological way. He was acting the way he acts. I chose to be blind, and finally I saw and I got out. Yeah, he, of course, deserves blame for what he did, but To me, it's interesting you say then she did get married and have a child. I think her psychological sophistication allowed her to get out and move on. A lot of people get really damaged by this kind of relationship. And then they're, you know, you describe how Greg would get paranoid. Well, you get paranoid because you can't trust yourself anymore. And is this person loving me or is this person a con artist? Or you start blaming the next person person for your previous bad relationship. And it sounds like she got to the place you have to get after you've been through something terrible like this. She did. She did. She definitely proved very emotionally resilient. Um, And she does say at some point to me that she does forgive him for what he did. Forgiveness can have lots of different meanings in this context. And I think it sounds like for Angie, it's just meant I'm closing the door. He's not haunting me. Yeah, I think I think that is exactly what she meant because later she told me that she used to there was a point when she saw when she thought that getting closure on this relationship would mean having the answers, you know, knowing what he did all day, knowing who he really was, knowing the truth. Um and then she realized that maybe it's just no longer having him take up space in her mind and no longer wondering what the answers were, just being able to let it go. That's when you're really free. Yeah, yeah. The Great Emily Yaffe. Now, Angie's story isn't about one of the world's biggest cons, but it might be one of the most common. Greg didn't bilk her out of tons of money. He didn't sell her any fake paintings. He didn't cheat her in a game of dice. But what he did do was far more subtle and in many ways, far more damaging. For years, he took advantage of her emotionally, causing her to question the very nature of her reality. I'm happy that Angie was able to, but I don't forgive Greg. 
In my mind, he's one of the worst kinds of con artists. He wasn't just doing this for a free apartment. He was doing this to control a human being. Greg built a web of lies to keep Angie confused and second-guessing herself. If she didn't get out when she did, who knows how far he would have gone. The Grift is produced by Adelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact-checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. Next week on The Grift, we speak with one of the greatest Ponzi schemers of all time, on the line from a federal prison. I look up at the TV, and not only am I on America's Most Wanted, there's an armed and dangerous shoot-to-kill order on me.